Welcome, everybody, back here for another six panel. Uh, my name is Matthew Mickelberg, I'm host of the Junior Resource Investing Podcast and Substack. Today's panel is titled Investing at the Ground Floor The Asymmetric Upside of Early Exploration. No one invests in the junior mining sector to match the index. The whole allure of the sector is its high risk, high reward nature, and how building a foundation of knowledge can tip the scales in your favor. The ultimate logical conclusion of that that line of high risk, high reward style of thinking is investing in the early discovery explorer. These are the classic high risk, high reward plays where the outcome is almost as binary as it gets in the market. Fortunes can be made in this sector that can only be created by successfully picking pre-discovery plays. Indeed, every world-class mine starts out with that same modest above ground exploration work and initial drill campaign. And it is the dream of every investor in this space to be able to invest in those companies. But to maximize your odds of success, you need the industry knowledge and expertise to make it happen. Joining us to discuss the potential and the necessities of investing in pre-discovery explorers are Brandon Skanderbeg, CEO of GFG Resources, Jeremy Link, CEO of Kiboko Gold, Ian Bliss, CEO of Northern Shield Resources, and Wes Hansen, CEO of Thunder Gold. Pardon me. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me today. I look forward to our conversation. Thanks for having us, Matt. Thanks for having us, yeah. So yeah, I will try to keep this as organized as we can. I'll, I'll, I'll try to kind of verbally name you as we go here in terms of who will answer first. With four of you, it'll sometimes maybe be a, be a bit of a dance, but we'll just start nice and simple, right? Introduce yourself and your company and maybe the potential that you are trying to tap into. Uh, and Jeremy, let's go to you and then Ian. Sure, yeah. So I'm Jeremy Link. I'm the president and CEO of Kiboko Gold. Uh, Kiboko's Hurricana project is about 50 kilometers north of Valdor, Canada's most productive gold mining region. Uh, we've taken a project that has a fair bit of historical work on it, exploration, uh, early stage to uh, with some, a lot of historic drilling. And we've just finished a 70 hole, roughly 11,000 meter uh, verification drill program. Um, is part of a process of working towards a mineral resource for the project that we anticipate reporting near the end of September. Okay, thank you. Ian? Yes, my name is Ian Bliss. I am president and CEO of Northern Shield Resources. Our flagship property is uh, the Root and Cellar Project on the Burden Peninsula of Newfoundland. It's being explored for uh, epithermal gold and, and porphyry copper, specifically an epithermal type of deposit called alkaline driven. These things are tried, tend to be highly sought after for their associations with both high grade gold uh, and large tonnage. And significantly too, the, they're often associated with a lot of tellurium. Tellurium is now a critical metal and it's one that I think we're going to be hearing a lot more of uh, in the coming months or the coming years. And I say the focus is uh, is the gold, but there's also strong indications of porphyry copper on the project. Uh, epithermal gold and porphyry copper are really end members of the same system. And it looks like we've got one uh, telescoped onto the other. This is uh, really a brand new project discovered by a prospector about 10 years ago, but Northern Shield was the very first uh, company to be conducting methodical exploration uh, on this project site. So it is really uh, a totally greenfield uh, uh, discovery. Hmm. Exciting stuff. And then on to you, Brian. Uh, very nice to meet you all. My name is Brian Skanderbeg. I'm the CEO of uh, GFG Resources. We're a Timmins-focused exploration company. I think most of you will know the belt, uh, very highly endowed uh, land position, um, lots of infrastructure and GFT holds about 800 square kilometers of tenements both east and west of Timmins and our core focus is is really at Montclair right now which is an advanced deposit. Um, we've drilled about 15,000 meters over the last two years on it and then we have a, a pipeline of targets beneath the Montclair deposit in Timmins where we're currently moving those through it, uh, advancement and initial test of drilling as well. So core focus is in the Timmins area. Uh, our office is head office is Saskatoon based. We also have a project down in the U.S. called Rattlesnake Hills, uh, and it's currently in a partnership with a private company called Group Eleven Technology at present. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's a summary of GFC resources. Excellent, and, and you take it home, Wes. Hi, I'm Wes Hanson. I'm uh, president and CEO of Thunder Gold. Thunder Gold has a, a gold property just 50 kilometers to the west of uh, Thunder Bay, Ontario. Hence the the company named after the, the proximity to Thunder Bay. 
Uh, it's an alcoholic cold related system, uh, quite large. Uh, it's been it's been explored since the 1980s. We uh, we basically acquired our interest in the property in 2020. We've drilled about 20,000 meters so far. Uh, the the signature is basically broad, low grade gold mineralization in association with tellurium. So uh, I think we're, uh, we're we're we've got some commonality with Ian and his project in Newfoundland, which is which is really cool to be honest. No, thank you, gentlemen. So I think maybe just because, I mean, this is all about potential, right? And unrealized potential and the what-ifs, and maybe this is somewhat inspired. I know that the the ASX requires uh, exploration targets, I think, from, from, from the early stage explorers. I'm not sure that's something that we see up here as much. But maybe just as a kind of from that style of conversation, gentlemen, maybe do you want to just discuss uh you know a favorite discovery of yours or maybe a, a discovery that you kind of have as on your dartboard as a target for what you think you might have on, on your hands and we'll go uh ian brian west jeremy for this one how about so yeah yeah ian uh, sorry yeah well i'm actually gonna pick one that's not northern shield the northern shield was originally uh, a nickel copper pg explorer and years ago i was looking to add a, a project to our to our portfolio and I was looking around Western Australia, which is known for its nickel copper PGE, but no one was exploring on uh, the Western Needlegarn block. And I came across a target that I was sure was nickel copper PGEs, a major layer intrusion. And for whatever reason, I didn't uh, follow through with it. But of course, a few years later, Chalice Gold put a drill hole in there, and they're now about a two billion market cap with a spectacular nickel copper PGE uh, a project there, right outside of. Perth, Australia, and if anything that did, it made it made me, you know, when you have an idea, try to see it through unless there's good reason not to see it through uh, as an early stage explorer, um, push forward with some of these. And that's how we ended up with the root and cellar project. It was diversifying out of nickel copper PGEs. We recognized uh, quite a unique opportunity in the Burn Peninsula. And uh, so far it's uh, it's panning out uh, pretty much as, uh, as we foresaw. Thank you. And Brian? Yeah, look, uh, obviously we all have our own personal uh, biases within the companies we run, but I'll, I'll go back to a previous life of mine when I was running with Claude Resources and um, we made a, a very nice discovery called uh, Sansoy Gap. And, you know, I, I think the uniqueness of that discovery was that it was uh, returning to a target. And, you know, we drilled this target two or three times and, and Keep, kept on looking at it and reviewing it and, and the context of it, and it was always remained attractive and on top of our pipeline. But until we really chose to, to test it at a different elevation and, and think about the target differently, um, we kept on finding kind of mediocre results. And, and eventually we got there, and this would be kind of 10 years after the first target was or was drilled the first time, and, and we returned a drill intercept that was uh, 20 over 20. And uh, But prior to that, it had kind of a hit rate of, 10%, 15% on, on, you know, 20 or 30 holes into this, this corridor. And so to me, I, I look at that and I'm like, you know, it, it showed a lot about the system. It showed a lot about the team sticking to it. Um, and in the end, that discovery unlocked an immense amount of value because it was made pro in proximity to relevant infrastructure, um, uh, namely our, our, our mill, which was 15 kilometers away. So I think when, when, even with TFT, we think about how we're approaching our business and are we seeing the right signs in the system? Um, how can we rethink a target that might have returned mediocre results and, and think about it differently and, and really drive discovery through that? So that's one of my uh, reminders to the team is to always, uh, you know, in some ways, exploration is, is, is about gut too, you know, and as you're in this business for a long time, if you're a seasoned technical individual, um, you have a feeling about targets and, and sometimes you just have to go back with that gut and, and, and test another target and think about it differently. So I would go back to Sandsoy Gap and then that mine's currently producing about 120,000 ounces a year for SSR mining. Excellent. Wes? Uh, I, I, I tend to favor the project that I'm currently working on and, and uh, I think the Tower Mountain, which is Thunder Gold's primary asset outside of Thunder Bay, is I love it. It's uh, it's uh, unique. It's uh, it's something I haven't come across before in my career. It's uh, you know, there's no real that we haven't unlocked the mysteries of what's controlling the gold mineralization there yet. And that's that's really the challenge that geologists are are tasked with doing is trying to assemble 
why is the gold occurring where it occurs and and stitching that together into a mineral resource estimate and tower mountain has the uh, it has the potential to be a major gold deposit probably a, a large tonnage low grade clone uh, you know similar what we're looking for is something like the next detour lake uh, as an example and and that's you know that's a that's a big hairy acid objective but that's what we're trying to do here it's uh, build something big and and drill it off and and uh, make our shareholders money hmm. Excellent. Well, you know what? On that note, Wes, in terms of making your shareholders muzzy, money, pardon me, this concept of, you know, there are there are better and worse ways, no, maybe not right or wrong, but better or worse ways with some some wiggle room for, for personal preference about how what does it look like when things are going right or what are telltale signs about companies that are doing things the right way versus the wrong way. Uh, and so I thought maybe, you know, having executives such as yourselves on you, you providing some color in terms of what does it what you know what does it look like that's right what does it look like that's wrong that you might provide for advice to 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 the our listeners here today uh brian wes and then jeremy and ian maybe do you want to try out that question sure you want me to go first uh yeah 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 look i, I mean i think when you're at the early stages of discovery whether you've drilled a proper hole yet or not you're you're seeing interest increased interest in the company um, I, I think listening to management speak towards their mindset of a discovery is really relevant. And, and if you see a management, you see Wes, you see Jeremy and myself talking about our companies and, and you see true excitement and um, you see the passion that you see in the individual, I think that's a, such a positive sign. Often that will translate to things uh, that you can see in the technical trading of a company, whether it's volumes or, or, or share price moves or these technical drivers looking at a, a share price behavior. Um, I always look at things like shareholder participation. So a company goes out here to raise money and um, you see key shareholders, smart shareholders increasing their position in the company. Those are all really good signs that things are going in the right direction. And I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. Uh, I think from my perspective, it's just good systematic mineral exploration. Like, yeah. like, like you have a plan, you communicate your plan to the market, you go out and you deliver your plan and, and, and hopefully for, uh, for all of us here that the results sort of demonstrate the, the plan that you're putting forth and the, the exploration model that you're exploring for uh, is valid. And, and that gets you over the line. I mean, you can't, you can't beat good science in this business. That's, yeah, Wes. Yeah, you're you're bang on. Like, it's really important that the company have a plan and that they keep advancing that plan. Because every time in our projects, when we lay out a plan, we go from one step to the next. At each step, we have an honest discussion. Do we want to continue? You know, the only like our time is valuable. Our shareholders' capital is valuable, and so we got to make certain that we're following our plan. Um, and then as we you know, move it along, that it's heading in the right direction and that we stop and ask ourselves whether we should continue or do we need to even you know, uh, take a different direction or, or, or stop completely. And so I think it's really important that you see someone you know, moving through uh, their work plans. And then going back to Brian's comment about you know, trading activity, uh, I think when you know, things are going right, when a stock moves up on high volume, you know, low volume moves up and down don't really mean anything, particularly in exploration companies. But once you have large volume come in, then you know you've got significant uh, investor interest and the people have taken, you know, uh, a strong view on the results of the company. Yes, and I'll just echo uh, all the previous speakers on that. I think, you know, the, the critical thing is, is, is to have a geological model, an understanding geological model, and that model may adapt with time. I mean, very rarely that things pan out exactly how, how we first set out. So that model will adapt, but you need a model. Uh, you need methodical exploration to follow that. And, uh, you know, there's going to be, you know, hiccups along the way, but you essentially you want to be seen moving that ball forward, uh, even incrementally. Uh, all the way, unless, as Jeremy said, sometimes results suddenly come out and it's like, okay, that's not worth moving the ball forward. And, and this goes back to one of the other questions on risk for early stage project. If, if the data is not supporting further work, then, you know, then don't push that risk on any further. Maybe it is time to walk away, but, you know, you want to be seeing uh, the ball generally moving forward on these incrementally under a methodical exploration plan. And, and understand that ontological model and, and 
you know, if, if management understands that, you know, it's easy to talk about a project and, and you can, you can, you know, you can see it and hear it in their, in their tone. And so if, uh, you know, management's telling the story, I think that's a good sign uh, too, that there's, there's a methodical plan and, and, uh, and model in place. Hmm. No, excellent guys. I think that you discussed, you know, good science and the need for a working geological model or, or, or research-based knowledge, database exploration thesis. I think that, you know, res will probably resonate with a lot of people, right? Uh, and so I guess the question I have for you, I mean, all of four of you have, I mean, I think a couple of you have a couple of greenfield plays in hand, but you know, a lot of you have historical data here and historical exploration that you can rely on. I guess maybe a question I have around that then, right? We're going back to pre-43-101, even sometimes stretching back to the 90s or earlier, how much does historical exploration and data play in your decision-making? And then I guess maybe questions I have also around that is like, how do you know if it's trustworthy? Um, and then how, do, how does that help inform where you're working from? And how, I guess in general, and at the end of it, how big of an advantage does having that kind of suite of historical information to work from provide? And we'll start with Wes and we'll go Jeremy, Ian and Brian. Well, you know, 43101 wasn't a magic event that all of a sudden forced geologists to be honest and do good work. It's it's like there's some fairly successful mines around the world that were discovered before 43101 came around. Uh, you know, not all of the, you have this impression that all of these uh, previous operators were all uh, similar to the Briex crowd, but that's exactly not true, where the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame is filled with those people. So... You know, I think, again, it's, it's you know, companies like Naranda and Inco, they knew how to run exploration programs and how to collect data and how to make sure that the data was was properly transcribed. Uh, I don't have, a, I, I think it's an invaluable tool in terms of evaluating uh, mineral deposits and, and opportunities. I think that uh, in often, often in a lot of cases, it includes diamond drill data, which is probably the best sample you can get in terms of uh, the subsurface. So, you know, we're, we're in a 43-101 world now where we are kind of uh, required to, in order to, uh, to use that data for a mineral resource estimate, we have to confirm it. And that's a reasonably easy thing to do. You, you, you can twin some holes, you can collect some additional uh, infill sections in between previously drilled sections, and you just basically build the scientific case that this historical data is good. And bingo bongo, uh, you know, some of us are inheriting $40 million worth of exploration work for, you know, a couple of million bucks of drilling. And that's, that's a huge benefit to have. Jeremy? Yeah, I agree with everything Wes has, has to say, like 43101 and starting with that, you know, like we do verification work on, at our project and we've got, you know, pre 43101 data and post 43101 data. You know, there's problems. 43101 doesn't solve anything. There are legitimate problems that we see QAQC issues in the, um, in, in, in the current data. Uh, in that data set. And so it's with, so with historical data, like it's incredibly valuable. Um, and I, our view kind of is, is that we got to trust, but we got to verify uh, and validate it. And, uh, you know, that's a, and that's not just looking at assay data. I, the biggest thing people, I, we find when we look at projects is that people just say, well, here's a spreadsheet with a bunch of data in it. And everyone just assumes that the collar locations are accurate for some reason. And, you know, we went out of the field and we found out that, you know, holes were often nowhere near where people said they were in, in, in the data set. Um, and so, uh, but the historical data set allows you, uh, particularly once you have drilling, to really have a quantum leap in your modeling efforts. You can plot up all the assay data that shows you your structural geology. Uh, there's very few exceptions to where structural geology doesn't control where your mineralization went. And so it's just a huge, um, huge um, advantage when you're going into planning your exploration program. Not just you know, going back for verification though, but also for you know, uh, greenfield exploration and they're on the peripheral of the heart of your project. Excellent, on to you Ian. Yes, well, Northern Shield is more involved in, in sort of generating our own projects. So we don't have a lot of historical data as far as other previous companies work. We do have a little bit. 
but on the same sort of note, a lot of this government-generated data, these soil samples, soil surveys, geophysics, this is essentially historical data too. And, you know, it's, it's free information, essentially, so it's incredibly uh, valuable. You can go and put your own interpretation on it. Some of this data was collected or written up years ago, so science and interpretation has changed, but it's, it's incredibly valuable to have even, you know, small amounts of data, like some of this government data out there. That's how we uh, generate our, our projects. And, and uh, as Jeremy said, sometimes, you know, data from, from decades ago is, is misplotted. Uh, and so there's opportunities uh, there. But one thing, some of the older data is they were really good. Geologists, you know, 30, 40 years ago were really good at describing what they saw. They may have mislabeled the rock, but they were really good at describing what they saw. So you can often go back and, and read those reports and get information from simply reading these, uh, uh, these descriptions uh, and looking at them in a, in a different context. So uh, all this historical data, whether it's government generated data or other mining companies is, is really the first place to go for, uh, whether you're uh, you know, going on a historical property or generating a, a brand new project. Interesting. Thank you, Ian. And Brian, final thoughts on this one? Yeah, I would say I always do my best to try to put my uh, myself in the position of the historical explorer. And you might read a report, you might look at data, you, you might have a spreadsheet, as my peers have talked about. But, you know, most of my experience tells me that that data is pretty solid quality. And yeah, there might be color errors from back in the day, and there might be color errors in the work that we do right now, even. And there's challenges in the integrity of data that's even generated today. Um, but do my best to put myself in those shoes. Often there's some really intelligent individuals that have put some thought in. If there's something that's off in the data, there's usually a reason for it. And uh, there's usually a rationale and a thought set and, and something that can be learned from that. Um, drilling a deposit a different way than you're thinking it should be drilled. Well, they probably knew as much or a lot of what you know right now and had a reason to drill it a certain way. So try to understand why they did what they did and uh, use that to the best of your knowledge going forward. Interesting. No, thank you, gentlemen. Uh, so I'm going to ask you a two-part question here now, and I'll, I'll ask you, can I put on your caps as private investors in this sector, right? When you end, so a two-part question here. Part one is, you know, what do you look for? What are the essentials that, you know, if you are looking at an early, early exploration project that you want to put some money into, what are some things that you look for? And then part two, I'll give you a chance here to discuss your own companies. You know, what's what's the checklist that, you know, of those critical elements of a, of a successful early explorer, you know, what aspects do you want to highlight for our audience here today? And then I'll start with you, Jeremy, and we'll work from Ian to Brian to Wes. Okay. Well, I've been in investing you know, over 20 years in, in uh, junior exploration, probably way more than I should be. And uh, the lesson I have learned uh, painfully and also joyously is that you invest in people. Good people find good projects and can advance them. It, it really comes down to that skill set. And that person doesn't need to have like a series of discoveries or found millions of ounces, you know, in their prior um, job. They need to just have the skill set to advance the project forward, have a solid plan, and you know, a good geological argument for making that exploration. And so to turn that for like Kiboko. Our most viable asset is our people. We explore for moderate grade coarse gold. So not low grade, not high grade, somewhere in between. And if you've never worked in those types of systems before, they're confusing and arguably a better word is frustrating. <laughs> and so by having that expertise, you don't fall for the same, like I would call it rookie mistakes, or you don't get disappointed with the data when things don't turn out the way you hoped they would. Or maybe you don't get overly excited because you understand you have this significant you know, nugget effect in your project. And that's a key aspect for Kiboko and its Heracana project as we're advancing what we believe, what we see as a uh, fine uh, course goal project. Excellent. And Ian? Yeah, I'll concur with that. I guess it, it often, and you hear this from investors, it, it, you know, it comes down to, to management, uh, you know, understanding the model, uh, taking an honest approach to it. I mean, I think we all like like to tell our story, uh, but there's often a fine line between telling that story and sort of 
over promoting, which is really uh, days days in the past. But I, I think it's taking a, just an honest approach to it, uh, understanding the geological model and and communicating it, and and shareholders begin to understand that a lot more. No, you know, obviously as as geoscientists, there's a lot of geospeak out there, but but investors are doing their homework uh, nowadays too, and they're you know they're understanding uh, the stories in the geological model. And as long as you show enthusiasm and you're telling the story honestly, uh, you know, I think that's what, uh, you know, investors should be looking for. Excellent. On to you, Brian. Yeah, look, I'm always looking for context to the data. So I might look at uh, a press release for GFG or I might look at a press release for Brian Skanderbeg from an investor standpoint. And it might be soil results. It might be drill results, but you might have a splashy greatest, but it's really about how do you interpret that data in the context locally? And I'll give it a good example. You may have a, a massive soil anomaly and, you know, it may be on a slope down a ridge and it might be a kilometer by 500 meters and it's, it's a singular point source and it doesn't have scale. So trying to look at the location of the data and the context of that data is, is relevant for me, um, whether it's a chip result, whether it's a soil result, whether it's a drill result. Um, the other thing I would say to really focus on that, that I look at is, uh, is, is this concept of just jurisdictional endowment. What do you have in the belt as, as relevant examples? Um, because these belts and deposits and mines that we're looking for as explorers, they, they occur and they share similarities. And in a given belt like Timmins or Valdor or, or Kirkland Lake, there's characteristics of the systems um, that are all shared. So I really look at this, uh, this, 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 this concept of what does the belt yield in terms of systems and the scale of those systems and the character in terms of grade, mineability and value. And, and inherently that's what drives part of the GFG decision making when we think of a district like Timmins, like it has, you know, literally dozens of deposits, five million ounce plus. And that is our unique character of the, the systems that are at work there. So if I'm looking at a piece of data or a piece of drill hole, that's what I try to look at. It's local context and jurisdictional context. Hmm. Wes, final thoughts? Uh, look, you guys all, all stole exactly what I was going to say, so we'll just move on to the next part of the question. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I might actually I might circle back here again and and ask you gentlemen you're giving me lots of positive examples could you maybe give me some 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 red flags or yellow flags in terms of early explorers that you would maybe you know you would it would maybe raise your raise your hackles a bit or make you ask some questions about what's going on and maybe Ian we'll start with you then Brian Wes and Jeremy well, I think Brian sort of touched on it previously. It's it's the lack of information or incongruent information, a lack of context. Uh, and uh, I mean, I I saw a press release just the other day with great numbers, but you try to find some context on it, and it was absolutely impossible. So you give out results, but there needs to be some some context uh, to the information. If there's not, then you know, it's pretty much a red flag right away when you can't even find a map of the occurrence or the soil anomaly or the, or the grab sample. Uh, so, yeah, you, you know, any lack or incomplete information is is uh, is definitely a red flag. Excellent. Brian, do you feel you already answered that one? Or do you have more to more color to add? Yeah, I mean, to me, I always like, look, we, we try to get news out, release and communicate with our shareholders. So certain things that are flags are unusually delayed results. Look, we can all have problems in a lab, but but often, um, you know, somebody maybe not wanting to, to talk about results that are very mediocre. Um, language that's around pursuing other strategic opportunities is an obvious one. And, and even of GFG, I mean, I'll own my own, um, our own path. We, we've pivoted, we've changed from one asset to another in time. But I think that's also uh, proper risk mitigation in your portfolio. So you might have an asset that's not trending where you want um, and you might make a decision, we need a strategic shift, we need to look at strategic alternatives. Sometimes those are really good drivers. You've got a new company that's looking also, they're being transparent about it and let's not be afraid to change path if it's not working appropriately. Um, so there might be flags there. I think it's also as much about how management chooses to respond or, or communicate 
those strategic changes. Thank you, Brian. Wes? Well, I mean, Ian and, and Brian both hit the nail on the head. There has to be some context to the results that are being released and, and you know, some images and, and maps and sections that sort of describe what the, what the results mean to the, to the investor. And, you know, investors have to, have to do their own due diligence as well. I mean, it's not, uh, you know, if you're, if you're buying stocks simply on the basis of a flashy Joe result, <laughs> you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> I tend to uh, I tend to avoid the, the the smoke and high grade results if I can, simply until they they demonstrate some continuity of those results and, and stitch them together. And I think there's enough uh, there's enough good stories out there in the in the exploration world today that demonstrate the importance of that and and the success of that. But uh, you know, like just just know. You know, try to educate yourself on the district where the company is working. Make sure that the the neighboring properties are demonstrating similar results of similar tenor. And uh, you know, if you're the oddball in a camp, you know, if you if you've got screaming high grades in a camp that's known for large grade or large tonnage, low grade deposits, you might want to take a closer look at it and, and gain a better understanding. Jeremy, final thoughts. Well, um, you know, I think what context is, is is important. I do see a lot of bullshit out there. It's crazy how many people like there's just press releases full of geobabble. I call it geobabble after geobabble. It's early stage. Maybe you don't, you can't put it into context. Or in some instances, maybe that it's so complex uh, and you're under, uh, you don't have the companies don't have the time to really try to put it into a much larger context for the investor. There is a lot of pressure to get drill results out as they come in, both from your investors, but also from the securities commissions. And so when you think there's a lack of context, I would encourage investors to contact the company, ask more. I think everyone here on this panel, our press release ends with more information to contact the company. And then the you know whether it's the CEO or someone else from the team will walk you through the sections that are there, the maps and everything else to help you provide that context. And you know I think I think when Brian mentioned something about like lab issues, Kiboko had lab issues in the last year, and you know those are genuine reasons to hold back you know drill results. And so you do need once again talk to the company, come up with your own opinion to determine whether or not. Is this an excuse or is it a reason? And if you sense that it's an excuse, that's probably a uh, a red flag for you. Excellent, thank you, guys. So, going to turn here and discuss just jurisdiction and its impact on this. I'm going to guess based on where your all your flagship projects are that you all of you probably have some opinions on on the importance of jurisdiction. But I guess my question is: Is this? I mean. How jurisdictionally agnostic are you guys? I mean, it's been, when it comes to early exploration, pre-discovery exploration, are you, and I guess this is coming down to like the actual like selection process of an actual individual land claim. I mean, were you looking in tier one jurisdictions specifically and intentionally? Are you more agnostic where you'd be willing to just chase uh, chase good, good, you know, juicy land claim regardless of where it is? Or how much does that factor in, I suppose? Brian, I'll start with you. Then West, Jeremy, Ian. Absolutely critical. Um, we're all in a competition for uh, creating value for our shareholders and, and competition for assets. So when I think about a jurisdiction, I want to look at our team and say our team can compete and win in this jurisdiction. And we have the technical capacity to lead and to make discoveries here. Discovery is inherently exceptionally high risk and um, you need the best team and that team most often has jurisdictional weighting in their capacity. So looking at your geologists, looking at your teams and saying, are we the uh, one of the strong teams working in the Abitibi in terms of our philosophy? And um, so that's one side of it, absolutely critical um, from a capacity potential. But jurisdiction to me is also on the second side of it is like, um, it's the endowment, it's the infrastructure, it's the exit path. And I'm always really keen on looking at who are the natural buyers of an asset. If we have an asset that's discovered in central Nunavut, it, it, it needs to float its whole entire infrastructure. If you can make a discovery in Timmins of a million ounces, 
the filter is much, much smaller to reach something that's an economic threshold. So jurisdiction is, to me, the top of the pyramid of what we should be looking at to um, improve our odds of success. Well said, Brian. And Wes? Uh, you know, Brian, uh, again, I couldn't agree more. Look, there's a reason why Canada and the United States are at the top of the Fraser Institute preferred locations for mining investment. Uh, you know, they're just good, safe places to work. There's, uh, there's surety of title. There's lots of access and infrastructure in place. There's trained workforce that's available to you. People like it here. It's a safe place to go to work. Uh, you know, I, I've worked internationally. I've been, I've been in places perhaps that I had no right to ever go to, but uh, lots of good stories came out of that and saw lots of good geology, but I, I, I have zero interest in going back. And, and in some cases, those, those great assets, and they were spectacular assets, were simply stolen by the government or, or awarded by the government of the day from the, the, the Canadian company that invested time and money and effort to unlock the mysteries of the deposit. And then the government turned around and made sure that that deposit ended up in the hands of a party slightly more favorably disposed to the government of the day than the Canadian company was. So, you know, I think Canada is a great place to be. I agree with Brian a hundred percent, like a million ounces at the end of the road and in, in, you know, any province in, in Canada isn't as valuable as a million ounces uh, beside a highway 50 kilometers away from infrastructure. Uh, you know, it's, it's just common sense or, or 50 kilometers away from a major mining center like Timmins or Val d'Or or, or all these areas. So you just gotta, you, you know, you, there, there, there's benefits. Uh, jurisdiction has to come into play in your decision-making. And I just wouldn't work anywhere outside of Canada or the U S that simple. Yeah. Well, as an, someone who, too, you know, I, I like to swing at the fences uh, when in my personal portfolio and jurisdiction doesn't really come into play when I'm looking at things that are pre-discovery or early discovery. We're not building a mine in the next 10 years. There's something new that's been discovered. It's exciting. It's going to take time for it to, you know, define, you know, what's there. And if someone came to me and said, I have, you know, another oligoid, sorry, another like world-class deposit like look-alike, I think based upon whether it's geophysics, geochem, or some historical drilling and whatnot, and they wanted to go for it, take my money, right? It's really, if it's going to have a chance, it's going to, if it pops, it will get good results, it will pop, it will go, and it'll take years to work through the jurisdictional thing. Uh, that being said, I don't really want to work in those jurisdictions myself, but I got no problem uh, in investing in them uh, as long as it's a good case. Like for pre-discovery stuff or early stage, we're, you know, it's, it's cheesy, but like you're elephant hunting. No one's bringing you for like these questionable jurisdictions to go find something that's mediocre. Everyone's got a picture of a, of a big project. And that's because that's what it needs to be in order to work through those jurisdictional hurdles. Ian? Yeah, I mean, I guess there's two aspects that jurisdictions as you know, the political economic uh, point of view and then, then the endowment and the geology. Uh, early stage exploration, uh, from my point of view, is risky enough. So you can avoid you know, political uh, and economic uncertainty, uh, then yet why not reduce that risk? Uh, on the sort of economic geology side, uh, I mean, yeah, you want to be working in a jurisdiction that has some indication to support your model that it is, you know, well endowed uh, with, with your minimization and, and fits your model. Uh, in the past, uh, you know, I say we were a grassroots exploration company. We didn't mind going to, uh, you know, further corners of the world or at least at least Canada. We'd worked a lot in the north, and with that, we felt that was. You know, it felt our it, it, it uh, fitted our model because I say, as Jeremy said, we were swinging for the fences. We felt we go a little bit further afield, there's a chance you'll find something on surface uh, that's that's nobody's found in the past. But with that comes logistic challenge, basically helicopters or long distance of travel, and then the infrastructure to 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 get it out. Uh, and so, uh, the past few years, we've sort of changed our philosophy a little bit and, and look for jurisdictions that still meet our our sort of, you know, due diligence requirement of being 
underexplored, but being relatively accessible and good infrastructure. And that's one of the reasons we, we ended up in the Burden Peninsula of, of Newfoundland, vastly underexplored, but deep water ports, a welcoming uh, population and infrastructure in place and, uh, and potential for large scale deposits. Thank you, gentlemen. So I'm going to switch gears here, and I want to discuss uh, the, in, the outsized impact that the macro market conditions can have on, on you know, especially microcap uh, explorers. Right? Always frustrating. I'm speaking, you know, from experience as an investor. So frustrating to see good projects suffer in bad markets. And I mean, obviously, this can be markets, but also, you know, a few years back with the huge delays in, in labs, right, from assays, and and the, the way that that can cripple kind of your turnaround time and your responsiveness as a company. So I guess my question is. Is how do market conditions impact your decision-making process as executives of a uh, you know microcap explorers? But then also, uh, how do you shield your company from the worst impacts of those as well? If that makes sense, and we'll go west, Jeremy, Ian, Brian for this one. Well, you know the markets are always uh, always a big part of the equation and, and raising capital. I mean, the the bitter reality of life is. What's the average discovery cost in the world today? It's like over 25 bucks an ounce. Uh, some explorers are below that, some are above that. Uh, you know, this is an expensive business. And, and for junior microcaps, you've got, you can't afford to miss. It's really that simple. You, you know, you've got to, you, you got to deliver the goods day after day after day because uh, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the investors aren't aren't like old investors used to be. There's not there's not buy and hold. There's not a large buy and hold population out there. They're they're looking for a quick turnaround and a, and a quick appreciation of their investment in capital. Uh, sometimes that's three months. Sometimes that's a year. So if it's not there, it's they're going to get out of your stock on on uh, uh, any sort of bad news that you you happen to release. Uh, on top of that, a lot of uh, Canadians, uh, a lot of Canadian companies have the benefit and and the the anchor of uh, using flow through funds to fund their exploration projects. And quite often, the flow through funds are not long term holders of your stock either. I mean, they've got uh, they have their mandate. So again, if you if your results are disappointing or if there's a downturn in the market that uh, your risk your high risk capital disappears, then you're going to be left. Uh, Basically, with a declining share price and, and some challenges, and I can I can vouch for that 100. percent So, you know, you got to be you, you got <laughs> nobody's in the mining hall of fame only because they were brilliant. Uh, a lot of them also were blessed with an impeccable sense of timing in terms of when they found their discovery and and how they advanced it and the market conditions at the time and their shareholder base. And uh, that's that's the challenge we face. That's that's uh, what you sign up for when you sign on the dotted line to be the CEO of a junior miner. It's I'm not doing it for the adulation. <laughs> oh no! I'll work on that, Wes. Sorry, I'm obviously I'll work on that for you. Uh, J Jeremy, do you want to take it off from there? Yeah, sure. No, I you know like last Kiboka went public about a year ago. It was you know horrible markets. Not that you know I can remember a time when there's actually been good markets for a while, but. You know, what we found from that process, what good projects with good teams, there's money available, uh, regardless of market conditions. Uh, it may not be as much capital as you want or you think you need, and so you have to be able to pivot to working on that. For us at Kiboko, like we always plan big programs. We've worked at major companies uh, where capital was, you know, readily available, and that's the mentality that we kind of think about. And then we pair back, what can we get done? with the budget we can afford. So it either has to be a big program because not every hole is going to hit. Like you could do a four-hole program, all four holes missed. But originally you planned 12. And guess what? The eight other <laughs> are the ones that, that, that hit. You know, it's kind of like that anecdote. And uh, Or, you know, we look at budgets in which there's high impact. Like we've got a project called Mon Pass, two kilometers south of our main um, Fontana area of our project. We only need to put in like two holes to verify like 8,000 meters of historical drilling. That's a small, nice, good program. But, you know, like the market conditions, uh, ultimately, they, they, they do decide everything because, you know, once you, you, you it's, the, it's the shareholders who decide what the use of proceeds are ultimately going to be. 
and um, and so you're at the mercy of the market. But I always believe that there is good, there is money available for good projects that have good teams. Excellent, Ian. Yes, uh, as Jeremy said, we're 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 all at at the mercy of the markets, uh, more so in this industry than than perhaps uh, anywhere else. Um, but you need to find a way of, uh, of, of still uh, moving these projects uh, forward. And sometimes it's tough and, and getting it right, there's, there's money out there for, for good projects. But in these market conditions, the earlier stage a project is, the, you know, again, exponentially, it's harder to get, to get uh, access to capital. So you look at other alternatives, either perhaps partnering up, uh, you know, with another money company to do the work or, in our case, just you know, downsizing your your exploration program, but trying to still do meaningful work, uh, uh, to, you know, to move that ball forward and and make progress. So when the markets turn around, uh, you're in a good position now to to suddenly sort of surge ahead. Uh, and the flip side of that is, I mean, I've been talking to a number of uh, service providers on the island of Newfoundland recently, and they said, yeah, other than one or two companies, things are really, really quiet now. Everybody's sort of hunkering down. They think bad times are coming. And so I was deciding, hey, do I hunker down too, or do I go ahead with a, with a drill program? In the end, we decided, no, you know, if everybody else is hunkering down or most people are hunkering down, then I'll go ahead with the drill program. Uh, with the idea that if, if it's, you know, that, Good news. Hopefully, we get that good news. Is now you know we're it's, it's in a smaller market. Uh, there's done a lot of news coming out, and we can uh, get that focus on us. Then there's a, there's an upside uh, to these quiet markets as well. Awesome. Thank you. And Brian. Yeah. Look, I always just think of capital availability as uh, it's, it's a cycle we all work in. Um, to me, running GFT, there's a base level activity we need to do no matter what the market is. And that's just keeping momentum to the company. Two drivers will take us to an increased level. One of them is relevant discovery and the other ones is, is a good robust uh, capital availability market. So from that perspective, um, we obviously cycle our budgets and those, those budgets are driven by internally a uh, number of factors like our success and our feeling towards targets and externally is, is really how robust and available is capital. So um, yeah, that's all I'd say about it. Okay, no, excellent. So I'm going to ask us to, to look to the future a bit here. Just a couple of questions left. And we're kind of nicely wrapping up the hour here. Um, obviously, you know, AI and, and the world that we're in is rapidly evolving in all, in all aspects, I guess. How do you see the future of pre-discovery or early discovery or just how do you see the future of mineral exploration evolving? Uh, what technology are you using individually that you'd like to tout maybe as something you think is exciting or what technology do you see emerging that you think holds you know, high impact potential in terms of influence on the industry? And oh gosh, where were we? Uh, Brian, do you want to lead us off? Yeah, look, I mean, this this concept of AI and, and the evolution of it, uh, I was just talking about yesterday. And if you if you used AI as a terminology 10 years ago um, versus where we are now, it's it's probably a hundredfold. Um, and then you think of where we are 10 years from now, and it's probably another tenfold or a hundredfold impact to our business. So this is a huge um, impact. I, I do believe it will uh, still still is on the steep part of its curve, obviously. So I think there'll be a few impacts. Um, those leaders of the technology and application of AI will will have a higher ability to compete. And, you know, in my perspective of those, there are certain individuals and teams that prioritize that. Uh, some of those are the mid-tiers mid and majors. So I'm always cognizant to build the relationships at those levels and see how a group like Newmont or a group like uh, New Press was applying AI in their philosophy. I do think it will change our business um, immensely. Um, you know, will it ever replace a geologist looking at rock? No, um, but it'll just give them another tool to use and a tool to be more effective. And, you know, the days of prospector discoveries are, are, are largely gone uh, from our business. Um, some jurisdictions are still available, but uh, it's data interrogation. It, it's, it's, it's using the legacy data to look differently, to look deeper. And that's ultimately where AI can be applied best. So it, it will change our business, and, and it's still at a very early stage in this application. Well said, Brian. Wes, AI or otherwise? 
Well, I think I think there's a tremendous amount. Look, the the the, the mineral exploration industry is the only industry that's probably a slower adopter of technology than the mining industry, who is absolutely the slowest adopter of technology. I mean, you know, after years and years and years of effort and forethought and you know, basically we ended up with a bigger truck. Uh, there's all kinds of things that can be, you know, that can reduce the bottom line operating cost of a day-to-day gold mine or copper mine. It's, it's just, there's a refusal to embrace a lot of new technology because of the risk associated with it. I don't think exploration is any different. Uh, you know, for a junior to see the benefits of artificial intelligence, it's going to be tough because you're diverting you know, you're diverting the money that you raise from drilling a drill hole, which is, you know, at, at the end of the day, the best thing a, an explorer can do is drill holes. Um, you're diverting that capital away from drilling a hole to put it towards a, a you know, a, a, a evaluation tool that may or may not yield results. And and I, I love technology. I, 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 you know, personally, I think it's the way we got to go as an industry. I, I absolutely believe 100%. I'll disagree with Brian. It's not often I do this, but I'm going to do it here. I think AI is absolutely going to replace geologists probably in the next 10 to 15 years simply because there's no geologists out there anymore. Like the, the number that we're graduating is like lower and lower every year. Uh, they don't have a great deal of practical experience. They don't want to go out and work on some of our projects because they're not downtown Toronto or downtown Vancouver. So, you know, we have to adjust as an industry. And I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, scanning technologies and photography techniques and and tools and constant read uh, XREF analysis tools that, that can just collect data and make the interpretation of that data faster and probably more accurate than a geologist could do it. Now, all of this has to be supervised by, uh, a, a geologist uh, and preferably a geologist that has the experience to be able to discern when the technology is taking you down the wrong path and, and bring it back. But, you know, it's, it's, it's just, you know, we're going into a Star Trek world, man. I mean, we've all got communicators now that we carry around in our hands and make instant calls and, and we have space-based uh, uh, ex- exploration tools that we deploy and, I mean, technology is where it's at. I, th- I think it's uh, an exciting future and, and it has a lot of uh, has a lot of potential benefit, especially to projects that are challenged in understanding the geology. Well said, Jeremy. Um, I don't. I think that AI has a has a will be a great tool for generative exploration, but I don't think it belongs in the microcap companies. You know, like it's you think drilling is capital intensive, so are these AI projects. Um, you know, and really like it's, uh, I think there's one comment here, you know, someone made the comment here of like, you know, they don't carry hammers. That's true. You still need people to go into the field. Like we do all kinds of desktop work to evaluate projects, but we still go to the field to see it, to confirm it and whatnot. And so I just think AI will be a great generative tool. Filtering is going to help, you know, speed up a lot of things like how long, you know, to do like write your scripts for your models. I think it'll help with that. But at the end of the day, it's, it's not going to replace uh, a geologist, particularly a good structural geologist. But they're minting fewer and fewer of those every day. Just like look at Australia. They're, you know, they're closing geology departments. And you think of mining, you think of Canada, Australia, and, you know, uh, yeah, enrollment levels are down, graduation levels are down, and, and that's not sustainable. Something's going to change there. I don't know. I don't know what it is. It's a whole other topic of conversation, eh? Uh, yeah. Ian, do you want to take this one home? Well, I think everybody's covered it, but yeah, AI is just, uh, you know, one more tool uh, in our belt, one of these uh, more modern tools, and we've seen a whole bunch of them, you know, sort of come on stream uh, the past few years, whether it's, you know, drones, portable uh, XRF machines, new geophysics. Uh, these tend to start off in the mid-tiers on the majors who perhaps can afford them better, but eventually they're filtering down to be more accessible uh to the juniors but uh, as i think was west pointed out uh at the, at the end of the day it's gonna be hard to convince a shareholder yeah i'm gonna spend a hundred thousand dollars on some ai when you know at the end of the day it's gonna be a drill hole that that moves the dial um 
that, that we're all after. So it, it's just it's just one more tool, uh, and I think a useful tool, uh, along with many of the others uh, that have come our way the, the, the past few years. No, thank you guys. An interesting kind of diversity of topics there. I think, Brian, you have said previously that that could be a whole conversation on its own. I think you're totally right. I don't have time for follow-ups, but I wish I did. Uh, final question here, gentlemen. Um, I'll start with Ian, Brian, Wes, Jeremy. Uh, final thoughts, right? This is your last chance here to have a little conversation about your projects. Do you want to just, you know, as parting as a parting thoughts about your project, what stage are you at? Catalysts that are coming on the pipeline that investors might be excited about to hear? And then, you know, where are you at in terms of just the potential impact of discovery uh, and investor returns with your project specifically, or with your company in particular? Ian? Okay, well, we today we just announced uh, the discovery of, of, of quite considerable eight samples containing visible gold uh, from uh, one of the zones in, in root and cellar. Uh, we've been finding visible gold in boulders uh, over the summer, but this we finally located one of the sources in bedrock. Uh, there's clearly other sources. So uh, that was really a culmination of a lot of sort of methodical, but fairly uh, low budget exploration over the summer. Just going back to the markets, we had limited capital. So we just kind of put our heads down try to understand the geology and the structure. And in this past sort of week, that all culminated in, you know, the, the visible gold was nice, but the important thing was was identifying heavily mineralized structure. Those structures match the IP. And there's some really nice textures in the rock supporting, you know, the epithermal uh, model. And so now we're geared up to start drilling uh, a small drill program, but uh, drilling some of these targets uh, early uh, early September. And so that's going to be the next uh, big catalyst is a drill program uh, in and around this uh, occurrence with uh, quite abundant visible gold. Thank you, Ian. Brian? Yeah, from the GFT's perspective, um, you know, we had a, a, a VP exploration, Anders Carlson, join us back uh, in spring. So he's uh, managed to get himself up to speed over the last few months. And uh, we kick off the drill program here in, in early to mid-September. So. For us, and I think for most everybody in this space, it's really about the drill bit. And uh, we've had some great results come out of the Montclair project in Timmins. Uh, numerous economic intercepts at shallow depths, and, and we're showing some scale. We're showing in an area that has big deposits. So, twofold, you'll see us follow up on the Montclair, drilling it deeper, drilling it laterally, growing the system. I think these are pretty high probability drill holes that you'll see some some really solid results. And then there's the step out across our land position where we have a pipeline of targets um, across 30 kilometers where we're going to start doing preliminary tests of those. Um, yeah, look, really exciting time for DFT. Our balance sheet's okay. Um, we've got some good catalysts here coming out in H2 this year and uh, really excited as always to get back out there with the drill. And, and ultimately that's really what drives business drives value in this business. Thank you, Brian. Wes? Um, you know, we're kind of in the evaluation stage right now. We, we, uh, we did a winter drill program. Winter is actually a preferable time for us to drill our, our particular project, the Tower Mountain. We're, we're considering, you know, we're kind of doing the budget process now, uh, evaluating our options for a drill program in, uh, in the winter coming up. Um, so that's one option. The other option is we're also, you know, considering maybe maybe now is the time to come out with a maiden mineral resource estimate for the Tower Mountain project. You know, there's options there. I think uh, I think which option or which path we choose to take will be predicated by you know kind of the world markets and and what's going on in terms of the world markets and. You know, we don't want to do a, 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 an overly dilutive financing. Our share prices uh, has not been uh, uh, performing the way I wanted it to perform since I joined the company in the past year. And that's just the way it goes. So uh, we've got to be careful with our dollars that we do have and, and uh, deploy them in the most efficient way possible to, to drive some shareholder value in the future. So we're, we're, we're doing the internal uh, kind of the wait and see for the next four to six weeks and then and then we'll let people know what we're going to do. Thank you, Wes. And final thoughts to you, Jeremy? Yeah, so, you know, Kiboko has completed a large 70-hole uh, exploration program intended to verify historical results. Uh, our team is pretty confident that that's what, uh, uh, that, that we have verified the results. That's now in discussions with our external QPs to, to confirm that view. And we expect to report our main mineral resource before the end of September. 
which is a major milestone for any company. We think that's going to be a really exciting time for our shareholders because the IPO we did a year ago, the funds were all to get to that point, to get to go do a verification drill program and provide you know, a made in mineral resource. Uh, that after that, we expect to start drilling probably shortly after uh, Thanksgiving this year, so mid to late October. We're in the process now of budgeting and planning that program out. And so we think that, you know, Kiboko has really had its head down working the last year. We're going to come out with a maiden mineral resource in, you know, in the Valdor Mining District, arguably the, one of the most attractive jurisdictions in Canada, if not the world. And then uh, followed by that resource estimate will definitely allow us to put the context, provide more context to investors over what we see, how we see it, and how the exploration will unfold. And then we'll launch into a drill program uh, sometime in mid to late October after moose hunting season comes to an end. Excellent. Well, that is it. Three minutes to spare here, gentlemen. I want to thank Six for putting this on. Uh, thank you, Brian Scannerbag, CEO of GFG Resources, Jeremy Link, CEO of Kiboko Gold, Ian Bliss, CEO of Northern Shield Resources, and Wes Hansen, CEO of Thunder Gold. Thank you, gentlemen. Matt Mickleborough of Junior Resource Investing. Thank you for your time, and yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you.